Well, good morning. My name is Ken Jones. I'm one of the pastor elders here, as well as one of the members of the preaching team. And we are glad that you could be with us this morning, um, including all you out in Zoom land. Cody, is that all right as far as where I'm standing? Perfect, he says. Um, we've been working our way through the book of Acts for the last uh, couple of months, few months, actually. And uh, the last few stories have been about the apostles in Jerusalem branching out into other places, taking the gospel outside of Jerusalem. But it's still mostly been about the Jerusalem church. And this week in Acts 12, we find ourselves back in Jerusalem for this particular story. There's a bunch of ways we can look at the story. And frankly, I've looked at them this story a few ways myself this week. Um, But we're going to look at two things. We're going to look at the normalcy of two things. The suffering of loss for the name of Jesus Christ and praying corporately as the church in the face of opposition. I want to just say something really quick about the context of this story. We'll read this when we get there. But this whole story takes place during the week of Passover, which is being celebrated by the Jews in, in Jerusalem, but by the church as well. And the church is celebrating not only Passover, but the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus, which took place about 12 to 15 years before this. So the church has been there for a while. The church has already, as we know and we've read, experienced serious, uh, significant persecution. Um, Obviously, they saw the Lord Jesus himself be crucified and then be resurrected. Some years ago, they saw Stephen be stoned to death for the gospel. There are other people. We know that during the persecution that arose when Saul was involved in it before his conversion, that they went around arresting people, Christians, and put them in jail. And this week that we're going to read in this story, uh, they see the death of James, one of the apostles, and along with Peter, probably the leading apostle in the 12. Well, let's pray together, and then we'll read. Lord, we just sang, O love that will not let me go, I rest my weary soul in thee, I give thee back the life I owe. O oh, joy that seeks me through pain, I can't close my heart to you. O oh, cross that lifts up my head, I dare not fly from you. Lord, as we come to this story that um, is a story of one apostle dying brutally for the name of Jesus and another being rescued, Lord, we just ask you to stir in our hearts, move in our hearts. There are so many things that we can learn from your people of old, and we ask you to teach us. Teach us something new. Um, Take something that we've already learned and expand on it. Lord, move in us today to learn from you. In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, Acts 12.1 begins with the words about that time. And you might say, about what time? Um, It's about 12 to 15 years, as I said, after the death and resurrection of Jesus, after his ascension to the right hand of God, and after the coming of the Holy Spirit and the birth of the church. It's about 9 or 10 or 10 or 11 years after the death of Stephen. So this is a while. It's been 9 or 10 years since Philip led the Ethiopian 
I didn't realize I was up on this screen. That's interesting. I wonder why everybody's watching the screen. I thought maybe there are cartoons or something over there. Um, it's been nine or 10 years since Philip led the Ethiopian to Christ. It's been about nine or 10 years since Philip and John and Peter went into Samaria and led people to Christ. It's about nine or 10 years since Saul was converted to Christ. And it's about five years after Peter's trip down to Caesarea that we heard about in the last few weeks. So back to this text. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And then when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of the unleavened bread. And when he had seized Peter, he put him into prison. delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him. Now, just a little insert. A squad of soldiers was four men, and four squads would work together in shifts of three hours each. So there'd be four people with them for, you know, over this 12-hour period, and then they'd keep rotating. Herod was intending to release Peter after Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison. So he was there for a few days at any rate. But earnest prayer was made for him to God by the church. Now, the very night before Herod was to bring him out, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He poked Peter in the ribs and woke him up, saying, Get up, quickly! And the chains fell off his hands. The angel said to him, Get dressed, put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. He went out and followed him. Peter did not know what was being done by the angel was real. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guard, and when they came to the iron gate leading into the city, it opened to them of its own accord. They went out and went along the street, and immediately, poof, the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Now I'm going to give you the next little part, a little bit condensed form, and then the last part, a summary. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark, where many were gathered for prayer and were praying. Peter knocked at the door of the gateway, when they finally got around to opening it, they saw him and they were amazed. But motioning them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. That's not the James who has died. It's another James who is a leader in the church. And he departed and went to another place. After that, Herod had the sentries executed, and he left town for the coast. And some leaders from some coastal towns came to ask him for food support. He went out and gave a fancy speech, and they hailed him as God. But because he did not give God the glory, the text tells us immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he died. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Well, because the death of James gets only half a verse in this story, uh, it's easy to fly right by it. In fact, in most of my Christian experience, 
the story about Peter being locked up in the prison and the angel coming. That's a really cool story. And you hear it in Sunday school, you hear it in sermons. That gets most of the press, and it's understandable. The Apostle James was the first of the apostles to die for the name of Jesus. He's the only one who's recorded in the scripture as having died for the name of Jesus. But we learn from other extra biblical excuse me, sources that they all died, including Paul, except John. John is the only one who died of natural causes. They knew this was coming. This is, this is not a particularly comfortable thought for us. Well, maybe it is for you. It isn't for me. Uh, we live in a country that for its entire existence has not only, um, it's actually encouraged Christian pursuits. Um, it, there are a lot of Christians in America. A lot of people came to the Americas with God uh, in their hearts. I mean, they came here to start a new country that, and, and have a country that, that gave them freedom of religion and freedom to worship. And we've grown up in a country that, for the most part, historically has supported Christian causes, even throughout the world. So the idea that dying for the name of Jesus uh, is normal is not only foreign to us, it's, it, it may even be anathema to us. For, for many American Christians, Christianity is supposed to be synonymous with the good life, the successful life, the safe life. And at, at the very least, it's not an invitation to suffering. Well... That would come as a surprise to about 340 million believers alive right now. Last month, you can look this up. Last month in January, Open Doors USA published their annual world watch list, the 2021 world watch list for the reporting period from October 2019 through September of 2020. In the last year, Around the world, more than 340 million Christians live in places where there is significant persecution for following Jesus. And 310 million of those 340 live in countries with high level of persecution and discrimination. That is one out of every eight believers in the world. There are about two and a half billion Christians in the world. The report also included these facts. Last year, 4,761 Christians were killed for their faith. 4,488 churches were attacked. Church buildings were attacked. 4,277 believers were detained without trial, arrested, sentenced, or imprisoned for their faith, in addition to the ones who died. So that's what's going on in the real world. Let's think about what scripture has to say about this idea. The normalcy of the suffering that comes with following Jesus and claiming his name. The apostles were super familiar with the words of Jesus. They'd followed him around for a few years, and then they've now lived with him as spirit inside of them as they lead the church for the last 12 to 15 years. They're very familiar with these words. Here's some, here are just a few. You've heard these before. In Luke 9, 23, Jesus said to all, if anyone would come after me, anyone would come after you, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses life for my sake will save it. In John 15, if the world hates you, know that it hated me first. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. 
And in Matthew 5, in the Beatitudes, he says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when you others revile you and persecute and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So they had these words ringing in their ears and they taught these things. They taught the church the things that they had heard from Jesus all those years. That Peter and Paul and the rest of the apostles knew that taking up their cross and following Jesus meant following him into death is really clear when we read the words of Peter and Paul and James that they wrote later on to the churches. None of them went looking for opposition. They didn't go looking for death. There are plenty of stories like the one we'll read that we just read about Peter being released uh, by the sovereignty of God because it was God's time for them. But they all expected this. None of them were surprised. I suspect that John was surprised that he didn't lose his life for the name. In his second letter to Timothy, Paul writes, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. How's that for a cheery way to start your morning? Everyone who desires to live a godly life in Jesus Christ will be persecuted. Boom. In his first letter to the churches, uh, Peter writes, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed. And the letter of James says, consider it pure joy, brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. All of these men and the women, the men and women of the church took courage from this thought in Psalm 116, that precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Now, even though we scarcely feel it in America, certainly not the way that those 340 million people in other parts of the world are feeling it, uh, to suffer for the name of Jesus is part of what we should expect as disciples of Christ. This persecution doesn't have to lead to death. There are many other ways that we, I, choose not to suffer loss. There's a story recorded in the second chapter of Galatians where Paul talks about an interaction that he had with Peter. It was a really warm and fuzzy moment in their relationship. Paul had been preaching the gospel of freedom from the law to the Gentiles. And he had gone to Jerusalem and they'd even, the apostles had all signed off and it said, that's great. But when Peter came to Antioch to visit, he would eat with the Gentiles until the Judaizers the party of the circumcision would show up. And then he went and separated himself from the Gentiles and only ate with the Jewish Christians. Paul was livid and confronted him right there <clears throat> to his face in front of everyone because Paul, Peter had caved to peer pressure. Now, I would love to be able to say I've never caved to peer pressure, but that would be, my nose would be too long and my mask would fall off. But that's, that's, that is 
that's more akin to something perhaps that we can relate to. We can't relate necessarily to our brothers and sisters who are dying or being imprisoned around the world right now, but we can relate to succumbing to peer pressure. I've lived longer than most of you, so I've had even more opportunities than you to soft pedal my belief in Jesus and his gospel when I'm worried about what somebody else is going to think, when I'm worried about what I might lose. But every time that I choose or you choose to compromise what, what I stand for, what I believe, who my Savior is, it's not just that the Lord's going to whack me on the wrist. There is somebody who needs to hear the gospel of freedom. And we're here to actually help people come into the kingdom by the blood of Jesus. And when I shut my mouth because I'm afraid, one real consequence of that is somebody doesn't get to hear the truth. Now, if I open my mouth, that doesn't mean somebody's going to come in. I don't know. That's not up to me. That's up to the Holy Spirit. But if I close my mouth, as Paul says, if nobody preaches, nobody can hear. And if I don't speak, no one hears. So there's a consequence to um, closing my mouth, keeping it closed. Well, if it's true that following Jesus will lead me and you to have suffering and loss in our life, what does that mean to us? We're going to come back to that. First, I want to get to the other part of the story. If suffering for Jesus is part of our heritage, what is to be the church's response? What do we learn from this story? What did the church do? I'm going to jump to the end of the story. The very end of the story that I hardly read, there's a bunch of people down on the coast who are hungry, need some food, And they go to Herod. They appeal to the Roman government, of which Herod is a part. Now, I I don't know, you know, if you try to put yourself back into this situation, if I put myself back in this situation, Peter's just been thrown in jail by Herod. It's time to get the signs and go down to Herod's palace and protest. Let him out. Let him out. That isn't what they did. We don't have a record of that. What we have a record of is that they prayed earnestly. And they prayed, apparently, all night. Because when Peter shows up to give them their report, they're in the house praying. And that happens in the middle of the night. This happens when the, the, the night before, this is after he's been in prison for a few days, the night before Herod's going to let him out, the angel comes and gets him. And he goes down and he finds these folks praying. So I'm going to say a little bit more. What is Peter doing? I won't spend a lot of time on this, but it's fascinating to me that Peter's sleeping. I I heard one commentator say that he compared that to sort of, it's more like Peter, oh, Peter always sleeps, like he slept in the Garden of Gethsemane or something. Personally, I think Peter was sleeping like Jesus was asleep in the boat in the middle of a storm on the Sea of Galilee. There was a story where The disciples are out there. They are freaking out. They think they're going to die if the storm is that bad. And these are guys who spent their whole life, or a lot of them anyway, on the the sea. They're not strangers to it. Peter is sound. I mean, Jesus is sound asleep. And I think Peter learned that. He learned to sleep peacefully. It's not, he wasn't naive. It's not like that, well, God's going to come save me. He knew that his close friend and brother, James, one of the closest people 
in his life. I wrote a little bit about that on the realm this week. I'm not going to spend time on it, but he knew he had died. And he knew that I, my guess is he figured I'm going to get let out and I got to kill me too. But he, it didn't matter which way it went. He trusted and rested in Jesus. And while he's in prison, this earnest prayer is being made to God by the church. Again, this may be another thing that it's hard for us to fully grasp. This is not, <clears throat> um, in my experience, and I'm older than you guys. You have grown up in a different generation of the church in America. Uh, in my generation of the church in America, there were still Wednesday evening prayer meetings in a lot of churches. <laughs> Uh, that was a, a normal kind of a deal. But the idea that um, our experience of prayer is to be corporate and kingdom-oriented is different. Most of our prayers, and, and these prayers are good prayers, are personal. They're for personal needs, real personal needs that you really ought to bring to the Lord. Or they're the personal needs of your friends, and that's really great. But here we have a prayer a bunch of people, a church praying day and night. They're on duty just like the four squads of soldiers. <laughs> the four squads of soldiers, they're going day and night. <clears throat> so are these people praying. And maybe they did shifts. I don't think anybody prayed 24 hours a day for three days. Um, while they're praying, an angel comes and sets Peter free. Now, there, there's nothing in here that says, if you'll pray this kind of prayer, or if you will pray with this much intensity, or you pray this many prayers, or you get this many people, or you pray for at least 72 hours in a row as a church, it doesn't tell us that. That isn't the point. The point isn't that there's some magic process that if we pray the right thing and the right way, that something's going to happen. But it matters. It matters that the people were praying for Peter's release for the sake of the gospel. I already pointed out there's a big contrast between what the, what, the, what the saints were doing, which was appealing to God, and what the people in Tyre and Syrah did, which was pre appealing to the government. Well, a whole lot more than Peter's release from that prison came out of that prayer. Verse 24 ends by saying that the word of God increased and multiplied. And that is the point of corporate prayer, prayer, that the Lord's kingdom would go forward. And at that time and in that place, Peter being released was important to what God was doing on the, on the planet. There will come a time later in the story, after Acts is finished, after the recorded story in Acts is done, when we understand that Peter did give his life for the Lord and was crucified upside down because he didn't feel worthy to be crucified right side up. But not now. Right now, the Lord's purpose and the prayers of the saints were that Peter would be released, that he would continue to be an ambassador for Christ. So this gets to you and me. When you're troubled by something in the world, whether for yourself or for your friends or for a group of your suffering brothers and sisters in this country or in some other place in the world, where do you go? I, I, I will confess, whatever there's, whenever there's a problem of any kind, I, my first go-to is to work the problem. That's, just, I'm just, that's my wiring. I just like, okay, let's, what, what can we do to fix this? It, it is, it's, a, it's a hard learned lesson for me to start by asking God 
by actually coming to God and depending on the nature of the situation, bringing others into that process. In the face of opposition, in the face of persecution from the world for the name of Jesus, it is a good thing to pray corporately to the Lord, to the living God. James says a prayer of a righteous person has great power. We may not be super well practiced at this because we don't face a lot of personal opposition in our personal lives. We tend to pray personal needs and prayers, as I mentioned earlier. But to pray corporately for the advance of the gospel and of the kingdom is part of our calling together. If we aren't praying that way, perhaps it's because our lives and reputations are rarely at risk and we live in a real comfortable place. I mean, I know that's true for me. My life is comfortable. I can do this. I can come and be with Christians on Sunday morning. I can be a Christian without too much trouble. Maybe it's because we don't have a vibrant vision of the fact that the Lord is actually trying to expand his kingdom right here where we live and everywhere else in the world. Maybe it's because we don't feel like we have the time or maybe there's some other reason. If we're not praying together, that is something it's worth looking at. And I'll talk about that in a second. (laughs) There's a whole lot of things that need prayer. This may sound odd, and I don't mean to say that the Lord isn't sovereign over all things, but in a very real way, he has made himself dependent on the corporate prayers of his body to advance his kingdom, just as much as he has made himself dependent on the hands and the feet of his body carrying the gospel forward, serving. It's, uh, he, we're not called his body in some metaphorical sense. We literally are. You know, he, he is the head. And we literally are the body. This is actually a metaphor, this thing standing in front of you. This is a metaphor for the real body. There's, there's one real body and one real head, and it's Jesus Christ and his church. And we are called to pray and to act. What should we do? I would say two things that are related to what I've been saying so far this morning. One is that we should pray. I am so thankful to you, Emily, for getting... Inviting people to come pray on the hill. For those of you who haven't done that and can't do it for a variety of reasons, if getting up and coming to the hill at 9.30 on Sunday mornings doesn't work, do something else. Get some people together and say, we're going to pray at such and such a time and such and such a place. If you're not comfortable being with other people, we can have prayer meetings on Zoom. Zoom prayer meetings work as well as any other kind of prayer meeting because we're all looking at each other and be able to say amen to each other. The question is, like the persecuted church in Jerusalem, is our hope in God? And do we have a vision for what it is he he wants to do? So, listen, I am frequently vision impaired. Not in the sense that I can't see with my eyes. But I don't always have the biggest idea of what God is doing. One of the best prayers that I know to pray is, Lord, please give me the prayers that are on your heart. What matters to you? I promise you, I have prayed that prayer and found the Lord giving me those prayers. But more importantly, I have prayed that prayer with a bunch of people many, many times and found the Lord moving in that room full of people, in a direction with prayer, because the Spirit is alive and wants to give us the prayers that are on his heart so that he can 
hear them and act on them. <clears throat> we can also just keep asking the Lord to give us a heart and a mind that's set first on the kingdom and not on the pursuit of our security and our safety and our happiness. Listen, I love being secure and I love being safe and I love being happy. And I, I love spending time with my family, with my friends and all those kinds of things. But to set our hearts and minds first on the kingdom means to keep asking the Lord to do that in us and tell us what is on his mind. So ask the Lord to examine your heart. And then this other thing. I don't know what your stance is on the idea that being a follower of Jesus means that you have signed up for suffering and loss. Listen, if that's not interesting to you, I resonate. I really do. I don't want to suffer and I don't want to lose. But the text, over and over again, you read the Gospels, this is part of what we're called to. And it isn't, for the, it isn't about self-flagellation and asceticism. It's about understanding that the world is opposed to the gospel of truth. You and I have been brought out of the kingdom of darkness into the sun, into the kingdom of the sun that God loves. And God wants everybody to make that move. And the world's opposed to it. It's just simple. It is going to cost something. Uh, this is a tough, here's a prayer. Paul writes in Colossians, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh. I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, and that is the church. You can turn that into a prayer. Lord, I don't rejoice in those sufferings, but I want to learn to. If you struggle with this, I resonate. Um, As I've said, this has been a challenge for me my whole life. Is something I'll be continually challenged with for the rest of my life. Talk to your people about it. You're in a triad, talk to people, pray together about this. Confess, just say, and it's not about beating yourself up. It's like, Lord, I want to have a heart and a mind that is more focused on your kingdom than it is on anything else. The Lord is gracious and wants the same thing for us. Well, Peter says this. I'm getting toward the end here. What time is it? Good. It's a good thing I'm almost to the end. This is the last thing I'm going to say before the table. He writes this in 1 Peter 1. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ Jesus from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven for us. Though we have not seen him, we love him and we believe in him and we rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. As we come to the table this morning, and for those of you who are responsible for actually making that happen, please go ahead and start doing that. As we come to the table this morning, we remember the one who paid a much greater cost than we will ever pay. We will not be required to die the way that Jesus died. And I do not by that mean that we won't be crucified. I just mean that when he died, he bore our sins so that we don't have to. He became sin 
Paul writes, so that we would become the righteousness of God. That is not our, we don't have to do that. His cross is his cross and his cross alone. The cross that you and I pick up and bear daily is a different one, but it's a real one. So these folks are handing out these little cups. Most of you know how this works, but if you're new here, it's actually, there's two parts, two um, chambers in this cup. There's a, a little piece that peels off the top with a wafer in it. And the rest you can figure out is a little cup of juice. We'll take this and we'll all take it together uh, when everyone's been served. On the night that he died, the Lord took a loaf. It didn't look like this, but he took a loaf of bread. One loaf. It's the one disadvantage to doing this this way. It's one loaf. He breaks it. He says, this is my body broken for you. And then he took the cup. He said, this is the blood shed for you. The blood of the new covenant. So let's take this together right now. Hear this benediction from Hebrews 13. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in you that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.